Well, let's continue to exalt the Lord together with the reading of his word from Psalm 34. And I'll read the first eight verses. This is the word of the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let's pray together. May it be so, Father, for us, your people at this church, that we would be marked by continual praise of the Lord, no matter what's happening in life, that we have a steadfast hope in you. I pray that you'd use these verses from Psalm 34 for our edification, our encouragement, our correction. And again, may we learn and understand and cling to, obey, trust, believe, and live out what the Holy Spirit wants us to from these verses. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, of course, you may be seated. And, um, you know, I really love Christmas movies. And, and in particular, I always love the last scene of Christmas movies because they're pretty similar, whether it's... Uh, you know, It's a Wonderful Life or Home Alone or A Christmas Story. The, everything gets resolved in the end. It's usually snowing, which, which adds to the sentiment of the moment. And there's a Christmas song playing, and, uh, and it just feels like all is right with the world. And then the credits begin to, to roll. You, we might think that that's sort of the scene of what's happening in David's life. When the credits of Psalm 34 start rolling, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my, my mouth. We might think that he wrote that after Goliath was slain or after the Ark of the Covenant was brought back into Jerusalem, after one of these really high watermarks of his life. But that's not when he writes Psalm 34. He writes it in a cave, not sitting on a throne, but sitting on the hard ground of rock having lived through times that are confusing, perplexing, frustrating, stressful. He writes this when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. And we read those verses, but just so you know, he's in Gath. That's where Goliath is from. David's not real popular around there, and there's a threat that he's going to be taken hostage. And that's when he starts to act insane. Not the main point, but I would tell you, uh, there should be times in your life that uh, the unbelieving world thinks you're crazy, right? That your life just doesn't make any sense to those who aren't followers of the Lord. But David quite literally began to act like he was crazy. And of course the king said, I don't lack for crazy people. Send him out of here. And then as we read in 1 Samuel, David's not surrounded by a company of people who are thriving. With wealth, with status, with power. The Bible tells us he is gathered with everyone who was in distress. Everyone who was in debt. And everyone who was bitter in soul, now listen to me, that's the group of people God's always at work among. 
That's the group of people that God always uses to bring him glory. So you be cautious and careful with wanting to accumulate power for your own benefit. David is isolated. He's separated from his very best friend, Jonathan. He's being mischaracterized. He's being misunderstood by most everyone who knows him. He's just barely escaped capture and being held hostage in Gath. And the most powerful man in the whole country wants him dead. He's already tried himself personally a couple of times to pin David against the wall with his sword. And yet at this same time, David has been promised by God that he's going to be the king. Would you be confused? Would you be perplexed? Would you say these things aren't quite adding up? And then when David is in the cave and has a moment to think, reflect, and speak, here's what he says. I will bless the Lord at all times. First point is this. No matter what is going on in your life, you can and should bless the Lord. Point number one. No matter what's going on in your life, you can and should bless the Lord. Now, I'll just pause for a moment. Take a time out. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there are days that you can praise the Lord and days that you can't praise the Lord? David is saying, I will. We just sang the song, I choose to say, yes, I will. And I believe in, oftentimes it is a choice, particularly on the hard days. Again, David's being treated unfairly. There are things being done to him, said about him that simply are not right. Don't you think he's physically exhausted? We read the verses. I mean, he's just running from one place to another. Everywhere he looks for rest, he can't find rest. I'm sure he's mentally taxed. Anybody been there? Anybody there? Just like, I just can't have one more thought come into my, to my mind. Shelter is hard to find, and I'm sure he is spiritually drained. Can God really be trusted? If, if God is good, why this? Anybody ever asked that question? I'm not sure there's a man or a woman of God in the scripture who didn't ask that question. Why this? Why now? Why here? If God is who he says he is, why is this happening? And if God's really working for me, it sure feels like he is against me. Now, there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons David could doubt the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the love of God. And David likely would do that. If David believed the purpose of God is to provide him with an easy, comfortable, pain-free life. But that's not the purpose of God. He has something much better for you than a pain-free, comfortable life. Ultimately, what he has for you is his self, himself. Now, there's a statement I heard uh, frequently growing up. You've probably heard it too. And it's this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. How many of you have ever heard that statement? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And you know what? That's true. But let's be careful how we apply it. Because God does love David. And he does have a wonderful plan for David's life. But let's see clearly, part of that plan is the cave. And while it's true that David has many reasons he could doubt the goodness of God, and you probably too have those reasons, he also has a number of reasons to be thankful. Friendship of Jonathan. I mean, a real friend. 
He's got the daily provisions of God. We read through all the verses, all the chapters there. There had been some times David thought, hey, I might starve, and yet God provides. There's the escape from Gath. There's the reminder of past victories when he was with the priests. We didn't read the verses, but there's the sword of Goliath. Hey, God's done mighty things in the past. He can do it again. God's been faithful before. He can be faithful right now. Hey, for Joseph, there was a prison, right? Joseph in the book of Genesis, betrayed by his brothers, wrongly accused. I don't know of any man or woman of God in the scripture or that I know personally who loves him deeply, lives for him faithfully, and proclaims his glory and goodness who did not spend some time in the equivalent of the cave of Adullam. Leah, rejected, told she was less valuable than her more attractive sister, Rachel. But do you know whose line Jesus comes from? Judah. Leah's son. Job. In a single day, he loses almost everything that's dear to him. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Ruth, who lives through the death of her husband, the loss of her income, the leaving of her country. Right? Now, we know these stories, many of us, but I'm asking you, do you believe it in your own life? When the unexpected happens, when the difficult is your reality. And there's so many more that we could add who have their own cave of Adullam. We might say it this way. The cave is necessary, though it won't prove to be permanent. But what we learn about God and about ourselves in that cave is permanent. So no matter what season of life you're in, it is a season to bless the Lord. Is it a season of struggle for you right now? Some of you might say, is there, is there another kind of season other than a season of struggle? There, there are seasons to life, aren't there? The childhood season, when everything you're just learning, you're so impressionable, it's such an important season of life. I mean, if you're five or six years old and get thrown in the deep end of the pool, you remember that the rest of your life. I'm still nervous to get into the baptistry over it. Childhood season, so important. The teenage years, teenage years. When you're learning what you really think, what you really believe, who you're really going to be. And then as I reflect, you know, there was the diaper changing season of life. That's the season of hardship right there, my friends. But it's followed up in some way by a harder season of life. The there's no child in diapers around here anymore season of life. There's the I'm constantly taking my children places season of life. That's where I am right now. And then there's the I don't have children to take anymore wear anymore season of life there's the my body doesn't feel or work like it used to season of life there's the most everyone I know and love has passed from this life season of life every season of life has its difficulties but every season of life is a season to bless the Lord I try to remember it this way if you're breathing you should be blessing if you're breathing you should be blessing because here's the here's the truth it is whatever season of life you're in if you're not careful you're wishing you were in a different season one either that's past or one that's yet to come but you can say this is a blessing the lord season of life and by the way what does it simply mean to bless the lord what does that mean what does it mean to bless the lord here's what it means that you recognize to him his value and worth That's what it means to bless the Lord. 
You say, here's he's, his value, his worth, who he really is. That's what it means to, to bless the Lord. And let me tell you something else about hard seasons of life. The worst mistake David ever makes in his life is not in the cave, is it? Where is it? It's when he's walking on the roof of the king's house. And there he sees Bathsheba and he plunders his personal life into chaos. When he writes Psalm 34, he's in his early 20s. So can we just give an amen to seeking God in your early 20s, in your late teens, 20 years old, 21 years old, 22 years old? That's the age David is when he writes Psalm 34 in his mid-40s when so much good has come in his life. We read 1 Samuel, what, 18, 19, 20. If we had read 2 Samuel 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, it's victory after victory after victory. And then he's walking on the roof of the king's house mid-40s. So let's be careful how we... Define good seasons, hard seasons, bad seasons, because I think what the Bible would teach us is the best thing that can happen to you is the worst thing that can happen to you if in the midst of the worst things that happen to you really learn about what are the best things. Make sense? The hardest thing, now you think just you just take inventory right now so we can take this is what the Bible says, but what it has to do with my life. What is the hardest thing in your life right now? The hardest relationship that you have. And when you do that, you've just identified what God can most effectively use to teach you to bless Him. Now it might be, as we think about that, you say, I'm not ready to bless the Lord in the midst of this. But would you willing to ask God to help get you there? It's the first thing we see from Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. That no matter the season that you're in, no matter what's going on in your life, you can and should bless the Lord. Let's do number two. Second point is this. Your mouth is a mighty weapon. You know that? What you say is a powerful thing. He says, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, if we just took an inventory, every statement that you've made this week, every text that you've sent, every email, if you're still doing the email thing, every, everything that you have said, and you took inventory of it and did a pie chart, what percentage of those words would be praise to the Lord? What percentage would be complaint? What percentage would be gossip? What percentage would be self-centered? His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I think all of us can make a statement with the uh, blank shall continually be in my mouth. Something is continually in your mouth. Now let's think about it for a moment. Go back here to 1 Samuel chapter 22. Y'all hanging with me. Let's go there. 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there when he escaped Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Jesse's there. His dad's there. His brothers are there. All those brothers who didn't think that he was uh, should have been the king, right? And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Now, quick question. When your family gets together, what do y'all talk about? What's the focus of the conversation? 
what's continually talked about. Most families have patterns, right? And when they get, everybody gets together, what is it? Now think about, for a moment with me, all the things that this group could focus on and talk about. Friends, how you handle your disappointments and pains in life in large measure is going to determine if God gets glory from your life. So so here's things, I think in a manner of speaking, we could say they could have focused on. Revenge shall continually be in my mouth. Saul and what he has done to me and how he has treated me, he thinks He's the only one who can throw a spear. I'll show him. I'm pretty good with a slingshot. I took down Goliath. You think I can't handle Saul? Getting even shall continually be in my mouth. Despair shall continually be in my mouth. Complaint shall continually be in my mouth. Rage. What comes out of the mouth is simply... The Bible teaches us what comes out of the heart. Jesus said, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Receive the word of the Lord, friends. You're not who you think you are if who you think you are is different than the words that you say. Amen? We love to justify and rationalize our own sinful dispositions. You are who you are on the basis of the words that come out of your mouth connected to the condition of your heart. David speaks blessing to the Lord because in his heart he treasures God. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 4, 29. Hey, who are you drawing near to? Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul. And when those things are happening in your life, it's really important who you draw near to, to listen to, who's telling you this is the direction that you should go. Your words are powerful. Your mouth is a mighty weapon. Uh, Years ago, I was reading a a parenting book, back to the diaper season of life, and and I've I've never forgotten, it's just such a really helpful principle. And the book said, it's really important as a dad, as a mom, as a parent, the words that you speak first to your child when they're just getting up and what you say to your child at the end of the night as you're tucking them into bed. Now, I read that but didn't live it out very well because most of the time when my children are going to bed, what I said to them is, go to bed. But it's talking about the sensitive nature of a child's heart. You know, we've all noticed this with a child. I mean, when they're, when they're, when they're little, they just kind of gravitate to you in the mornings and cling to you at night, Right? And that children are so shaped by what's said to them in those moments. And I think that's true. But I also would say, thinking about this verse this week, your words are always important. There's not a moment of the day that it's like, okay, well, this isn't an important. Your words are all, your words are weapons. They can be weapons of good, right? Or they can be weapons for bad, either to harm or to protect, to bless or to curse, to tear down or to build up. The amazing thing about David is you won't find one single solitary moment where he says a negative word about Saul. Can you believe that? It's not true of Saul, by the way. 
Still there in 1 Samuel. Look at chapter 18. After the women get their number one hit going, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Verse 8, Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. He said, now I want you to notice, we're going to look at maybe three or four examples of when Saul speaks. I want you to notice what he said. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? Chapter 18 and verse 22. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you. That's a lie. And all his servants love you. Now become the king's son-in-law. Words of flattery. Lord, uh, words of deceit. Chapter 20 and verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Pretty unkind thing to say to your son, isn't it? Out of the abundance of his angry, jealous, and fearful heart, Saul speaks. And it's never a word of praise. Um, uh, Practical application. Sometimes the most helpful words you will say to somebody else is in relation to the unhelpful words that you said. If you've said something that really was harmful, destructive, and it doesn't give grace, I'd encourage you to revisit, sit face to face, and say, what I said was was wrong. Anger is a powerful weapon, friends, but grace is more powerful. Praise. You ready for... Grab a hold of a Bible principle here. Praise will never be continually on your mouth so long as you think the throne belongs to you. That's ultimately what's going on in Saul's life. God has rejected him as king. It's ultimately a gospel picture. Saul has been rejected as king, though he looked like a good king on the outside. He was a lover of self and pleaser of man and lived by the fear of men on the inside. And so he is rejected as king, and David's going to replace him as king. Praise will never continually be on your mouth so long as you think the throne really does belong to to you. And in Jesus' name, I want you to know the throne is promised to somebody else. It doesn't belong to me, and it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the son of David. His name is Jesus. And may God give us the grace to see, know, and trust. It's better that we recognize that he sits on that throne instead of us. But I also want you to know the one who sits on the throne stood in your place at the cross. And that's why your praise to unto him can be continual. On this side of Calvary, there's no legitimate reason for you not to praise the Lord. I want to speak in such a way, my mouth is used in such a way that Psalm 34, 2 is, is, is true. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Who are you aiming to please with your words, by the way? I always warn my children of an illustration I use about them, and I forgot to do that today. So I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Abel, I'm sorry. But when Abel is just a little guy, man, he's like three years old. He said, a, um, maybe 
maybe a word, not maybe, a word that we wouldn't say that's a good word to use. It wasn't like a real bad word. It was just a word we said, no, nah, I, don't, I don't think you need to say that word. And so we were talking and we sat down with him and I said, buddy, uh, can you tell me where you heard that word? And I could see his little eyes moving. And he didn't really want to tell us where he had heard that word. And so this is what he said. It's one of my favorite funny stories from our family. He said, I heard it from Ami, who is my mom. That's what he said. Ami told me that word. And now that's a lie. He didn't hear that word from Ami. He had heard it somewhere else, but just so quick to throw her under the bus. I don't understand it. He just said, I heard it. It's Ami's fault. She's the one. Blame her. May it be so of us that the words we use, you'd say, where did you hear that? And we'd say, I heard it from the Lord. I heard it from his word. That's where I got it from. Because this, friends, in a, in a, from the outside of knowing God, looking in, this doesn't make any sense. To bless him in the cave makes no sense. But this is what draws the unbelieving world to see. It's it's, it's not when you bless the Lord when everything is right in your life. It's when everything feels wrong, but I'm going to still trust him. Because the cave isn't permanent. But it often is a place we have to go to learn to really trust the Lord. I got a third last point. Is this the state of your soul is contagious. The state of your soul is contagious. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And then look at the verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So I take that. To mean the state of your soul is contagious. If people spend time with you, it's going to be pretty evident pretty quickly what you boast in. That means what you trust in, what you look to, what you hope for, for security, for provision, whatever it might be. That that whatever it is, you're essentially saying, magnify something with me. Let us exalt something together. Because God made you that way. We are full-on worshipers. Always lifting something up. And the state of your soul is contagious. That does beg a question, right? What is the state of your soul? On that note, one of the most helpful books I've ever come across in my life is this one right here. It's by Don Whitney, and it's called 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. Anybody ever read this book? It's fantastic. Uh, uh, Several times a year, I get this book out, and I just turn to the table of contents. The table of contents are the 10 questions to diagnose how you really are at the soul level. I'm just going to share with you the 10 questions. Y'all good with that? Let's, let's talk about the state of your soul, how you're really doing. Here are the 10 questions. For the most part, I think I'll just give you the questions. Might have a comment or two. First question is this. Do you thirst for God? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. 
Another way of understanding what you boast in is where are you looking for satisfaction on that level? Do you thirst for God? Question number two, are you governed increasingly by God's word? Number three, are you more loving? Love is patient, love is kind, doesn't envy, doesn't keep a record of wrong. Are you more loving? Number four, are you more sensitive to God's presence? Abiding in Christ is the desire of your soul. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Is that true in your life right now? Number, number four, I'm sorry, number five, do you have a growing concern for the spiritual and temporal needs of others? Is that how you view your purpose in the world? Not to invest everything that you have and all the money that you have and so on and so forth on yourself, but are you concerned about the spiritual and physical needs of other people? Number six, do you delight in the bride of Christ? Several Sundays ago now, it's probably back in the spring when we started our series on the Spirit-led church. Just put these thoughts together again. Uh, if you want to become more like Jesus, you will love his bride, the church, more and more. Some, some people say, well, I, I, I love Jesus, but I don't know about the church. Well, I know about how Jesus feels about the church. And so if I'm going to become more like him, I'm going to lovingly and sacrificially and patiently love the local church. Next question would be are the spiritual disciplines. Things like the reading of God's word, the memorizing of God's word, the uh, prayer, sharing the gospel. Are the spiritual disciplines increasingly important to you? Question number eight, do you still grieve over sin? Do you still grieve over sin? Not because, oh, I might get caught, but because it affects my relationship with my king, my savior, with Jesus. Y'all all right? It's all right not to be all right, by the way. Some of these we don't need to rush through. Number nine, are you a quick forgiver? And number 10, do you yearn for heaven and to be with Jesus? Those are helpful questions, aren't they? To determine the state of my soul. The state of my soul is contagious. So what is the state of my soul? Now, real quick. Concluding point, but it's an important one. What do you think David's answers to these questions would be? Do you thirst for God? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Are you governed increasingly by God's word? We should take Saul out. No, I'll be the king. We don't have to manipulate it, right? Are you more loving? You can understand how David would get cynical. Are you more sensitive to God's presence? Do you have a growing need? Do you delight in God's people? Are the spiritual disciplines increasing? Do you grieve over sin? Are you a quick forgiver? Do you learn, or yearn for heaven and to be with Jesus? 
I think David's answers for the most part to all of these questions would be yes, 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 yes. Here's the concluding point. He wouldn't have gotten there without the cave of Adullam. He would have never said yes to those questions apart from that cave. Do you know what I'm saying? Never would have gotten there. Neither will you. Neither will I. It's in the hard places that you really realize this is the state of my soul. I wouldn't have chosen this way. But God did. You know why? She loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's why. Psalm 34 sounds a whole lot like heaven to me, doesn't it? I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Sounds like heaven. And those who are heading in that direction, it doesn't begin when we get there. It is increasingly what we are doing right now. Let's stand together and we'll pray together. And then we'll have a time where we respond to the Lord and what his word says. I trust as we walk through Psalm 34 and thought about the things of the Lord together that that something grabbed your attention. My encouragement to you is just focus on that during this time of response. Father, I thank you for Jesus I thank you that no matter the season of life, we can and we should praise you. God, help us to recognize and understand our mouth is a mighty weapon. And what we do with it, it reveals the state of our heart. And, what we, and how we use our words has enormous effect on those around us. And Father, help us to see that the state of my soul is contagious. What I boast in, people can tell, people can know. May we be a place that when we gather together, it's the honest hope of our hearts that we want to magnify the Lord together. And Father, we pray for grace that the cave of Adullam for us is not a place of cursing, it is a place of blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.